something or someone will have first place in your heart. But when you find your identity in the one who created you, it'll change your whole perspective. morning, y'all. My name is Ed Griffin-Hagen. I'm one of the pastors here on our staff at Church on the Trail. You know, those were clips we put together from the movie Overcomer, which uh, I hope y'all are stoked about seeing Tuesday night. <clears throat> um, it's sold out. We sold out uh, all the tickets yesterday. So if you didn't get a ticket, you just can't go with us Tuesday night. But you can go August 23rd when it opens up. Uh, anyway, I want to welcome y'all here this morning. Um, I think God has uh, a message for us this morning, a very important message this morning. I want to welcome, we've got folks watching online, they do every week, really from all over the place, and so God has got us all here for a reason this morning. We are going to start a series that we're going to be in for several weeks, and it's called, you saw at the end of that clip, um, it's called Identity Crisis, and we're going to spend some good time walking through the book of Ephesians, Paul's letter to the church at, at Ephesus, <clears throat> most of us believe that Paul wrote, uh, wrote that letter in the, in the early 60s in the first century, that he wrote that letter from a, a prison uh, in Rome about 30 or so years uh, after Christ was crucified and, and rose again. And so I want to start us off today with a story about a duck, and it's a duck that thought he was a dog. Y'all, scientists know that... Uh, that ducks and geese and other birds that mature real fast, they, they do something called imprinting. They imprint right after they're born, imprinting or right after they're hatched. Imprinting is when they attach themselves to the very first thing that they see, which for a duck it ought to be a mama duck. But, and that usually does work for the duck, for any, any bird that hatches that way. And so sometimes, though, that backfires. One time, for example, you had a duckling that was hatched under the watchful care and eye of a sweet golden retriever named Gracie, and that baby, took, that baby duck took one look at Gracie and decided that that dog was the, the mama, and that duck followed that little, that, that golden retriever around all over the place, slept with that uh, golden retriever, looked to the golden retriever Gracie for protection, uh, hung out under the porch with Gracie in the hot part of the day, and when a car would pull up in the driveway, Gracie and the duck would go running out like mad, crazy dogs and ducks pecking at the tires of, uh, of that car. But here's what you know. Some things can't be changed, y'all. That duck is still a duck. That duck quacked. That duck flapped his wings. That duck um, pruned itself. And, and it loved water 
And most of the time it acted like a duck. Sometimes, though, it acted like a dog. Sometimes, for us, we Christians can experience that same identity crisis. We can. We have all been born into and grown up in a fallen, broken world. So we are, at least to some degree, we, we have all learned the ways of the world. We've become like it, but when we get saved... We become and we are in Christ. We use this term, and Paul uses it a lot, to be in Christ. We die to the world, and the Word says that we're born again. The Word says that we're a new creation, so that spiritually we're no longer who we once were. Too often, though, much too often, we don't see ourselves correctly. We act like the thing that we think we are rather than who He says that we are. We believe and we try to do the right things, but sometimes we just can't get it exactly right. And when we least expect it, a car pulls up in our driveway of our life and we explode out from under the porch and we start pecking at the tires like a mad duck. We're not supposed to do that. We're supposed to be swimming around in in, in clear blue lakes and grooming our feathers and laying eggs, not quacking uh, and, and pecking tires and chasing cats. Ephesians, the book of Ephesians, Paul's letter to that church at Ephesus, it helps us very much, helps us to see who we truly are as Christians. Of course, more influences our inconsistent behavior than negative imprinting because we are all, every one of you and me, we are members of a fallen race of people that are overloaded with this internal power of sin. But still, if we could see ourselves with more, um, more clarity as who we really are in Christ, we'd be able to live more like Him. That's why the Bible spends so much time telling us over and over who we are. And if we can understand that and achieve that a little better, we'd be better able to live that out. So Paul tells the uh, Ephesians who they've become in Christ, and then he prays that they might have the spiritual enlightenment to get their arms around kind of who they've become. And if we can do this, the quality of our walk is our walk is going to skyrocket. So today, we're going to be in Ephesians chapter 1. In fact, we're going to be in the first 14 verses. And I'm going to tell you, get this right up on the table. This will be the most difficult thing that we've ever walked through together as a church. And I want to ask you to, to put all of your presuppositions up on that shelf over there. To, and a presupposition is, is kind of something that... that sort of silently we assume before we even enter into a conversation. It is something that we bring to the table in our minds already. It may, in other words, it may be something that you believe. It may be something you've always thought, you've always believed because mom and them said so or, or whatever it may be. And, and really, like Forrest Gump says, you believe it for no particular reason. It may be just because you heard it somewhere, whatever, whatever it is. And so I want to ask you and me, I want you to take those presuppositions and let's just pretend that they're here. I want to put just for a while, while we're going through this, uh, this walk through Ephesians, I want you to take objections that you got and I want you to put them for a while at least, just put them up on that shelf and, and, and today I want to teach, I want to talk as a pastor, a little less as an apologist, a little less as a theologian, a little 
a little, I just called myself a theologian, that is hilarious, a little less, a little less as a, some defender of the faith and a little more as a shepherd. And we are going to talk about the fact that God has chosen you for all eternity to be his child. And the huge, ginormous blessing that that fact ought to bring into your life. And this is going to be tough, probably, because these questions are going to flood your mind. Why did God choose me? Why didn't he choose them? And what about free will? And all of those, y'all, those are all legit questions. But I need you to turn those questions off for just a little while and set them up on that shelf and let's rebuild based on what the Scripture says. Here's what I know. I know that this is one of the richest things, and I'm going to use the word doctrine, it's one of the richest doctrines in the Scripture, and it will bring more meaning and more comfort and more stability into your life than just about any other thing in the Bible. And I believe that that is why Paul launches the letter uh, to the Ephesians with it. Today I want to teach the Scriptures just as they're written. Uh, not going to be a lot of interpretation, not going to be a lot of opinion. I just want to show you what the book says. I want to let the Bible speak for itself. And so, look, I ain't stupid. I mean, I know that there's tension in that. And I know there's things in the Bible throughout the Scriptures where there's tension. And it's okay that there is a little tension there. God says that if we're saved, it is because He chose us and He drew us to himself. He chose us. He elected us. That's a churchy word, election. But he elected us. But we also know, that's over here, we also know that the Bible says that God loves all men, that God desires for all to be saved and come to him. And sometimes you just have to say that I'm not sure how all of that works. But I'm going to believe they're both true because he reveals both of those truths throughout the Scripture. And I'm not going to say that they are in contradiction to each other. I'm not going to say that there's conflict between those two things. Just that they may be, and it's okay, y'all, they may be a little beyond the grasp of our finite minds. But here's what you can't do. Here's what you can't say. Don't say, it's just too much for me. I don't agree with it. I don't understand it, and, I'm not, and I refuse to believe it. Look, man, if it is the Word of God, we got to understand that there are some things in the text of the Bible that are going to blow our minds and we just have to humble ourselves before them. For me, Psalm 131 gives me some peace about this. Here's what Psalm 131 says. Oh Lord, my heart is not lifted up. My eyes are not raised too high. And here's my point. I do not occupy myself with things too great and too marvelous for me, but I have calmed and quieted my soul like a weaned child with its mother. And that psalm is saying that there is a time to question and there's a time to just believe. To, to rest in the thought that he is God and the things that he says about himself, the things that he says about me and you, and the things that he says about the world, they're true. It is very much like the relationship between a parent and a child. And, I, and I, there are things that with our kids, Zach and Will, when they were little, that, that they, did, they couldn't understand because they're just little. When Will was a baby, just came home from the hospital, and Zach was three years old, Zach said, why can't he just get in the bathtub with me? Zach would say crazy things like, why can't I play with a hairdryer in the bathtub? And I would just have to be like, Bubba, there's some things that you just can't understand, 
and I need for you to just trust me. Just trust that I know better. Y'all, as parents, there are things that our kids just need to trust us because our understanding of the world and of reality is better, greater than theirs. And even with that said, which do you think is a greater delta? The understanding, Zach's three-year-old understanding of the world in reality or mine, which is better, a greater gap, that or between my understanding of the world in reality and God's? So there's a time to just rest in the arms of God's truth, even when you can't quite get your arms around it. And some of the greatest blessings are going to come from knowing when to question and when to just chill and trust that God may, he just may know a little better than me and you. So I'm asking you today, if you believe this book to be the word of God, I want you to, for a little while, put the objections, put your presuppositions up on that shelf and just listen. And I want to teach as a shepherd and as a pastor to show you the awesome comfort that this truth can bring into your life. And so I want you to know this too. The more that I'm in ministry, the more that I dig deep into the scriptures, the more precious this truth becomes to me. If you can get your arms around it just a little bit, it will add incredible strength and comfort to your life. I think you'll worship at a new depth because I think you'll say, dude, I have never really understood the incredible lengths and depth of what God has done in my salvation. So Ephesians 1.3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. That is a stunning statement to make to these people in Ephesus because there was rampant false teaching going on in Ephesus. That's why Paul sent Timothy there rampant false teaching, and they believed crazy stuff, y'all. They believed that there was these different spirit beings in the heavens, each one being over like a different area of your life. And if part of your, your life in this area got, got jacked up, then that spirit being was mad at you and you had to do something to appease him. And if something else in another area of your life, you made that spirit being mad, you had to appease him. And you think that's crazy? If you think that's crazy, in 2019... Today, people refer to that as karma. Karma. Something gets sideways in your life and you wonder, well, karma's paying me back for some crazy stuff. I, in my past life, I must have mushed an ant and now the ant's getting me back because karma's mad at me. I don't know. If that way of... Th- you may even think that, um, that if something is sideways in your life that God is punishing you. And the, the, all of that results in, in truly in horrible bondage because you walk through life constantly worrying about how karma or how God feels about you. And it's to those people in Ephesus that Paul makes this earth-shattering statement in verse 3 that in Christ we have the assurance of all of God's favor. Every spiritual blessing, the text says, ain't got to appease nobody. He is for me. He is on my side. There's nothing, there's nothing else he could ever promise that he's not already provided. Every spiritual blessing. And then you know what? Over the next 11 verses, Paul is going to show us how every member of the Trinity is now working for your salvation and for your good. At the beginning of this passage in those first 
six verses. The Father, these are some fill in the blanks in your worship guide. The Father planned it. The Father planned your salvation. And then in verse 7, he begins talking about the way the Son purchased your salvation. The Son purchased it. And then in the last couple of verses, the Holy Spirit uh, seals the deal and guarantees it. And we're going to walk through that today. From start to finish, my salvation and your salvation has been accomplished absolutely, totally, and completely by God. Let that sink in for a minute. There's nothing you could hope for more than what is available to you right now today in Christ. He couldn't love you more than he does right now. He couldn't be more for you than he is right now. He couldn't be working more on your behalf than he is right now. Every member of the Trinity is at work for you and, and, and through you, always has been, always will be, commissioning every atom, every molecule in the universe for your good. Ponder on the love that is in that thought. Now Paul says in verse 4 that the way that you can know all this is because he chose us, he the Lord, he chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him. Okay, here we go. This is where you may throw something at me. He chose us in him before the foundation of the world, before everything, before in the beginning God created. Before all of that, he knew you and he loved you. There has never been a time, never been a time when he didn't know about and love you. Your birth didn't sneak up on God. He's always cherished you and he's always had a plan to redeem you, to bring redemption, to purchase you back and to save you. And y'all, it doesn't just mean that he knew beforehand who would say yes. Does it mean that? Sure it does, but it doesn't just mean that. No, it says that he directed his love on you and he chose you before you were even a twinkle in, his da- in your daddy's eyes. And then verses 3 through 14, in those verses, God is driving the train. He is the engineer of the save train. And then you may ask, well, why did he choose me? What was it about me? Did he see that I was going to be such a, a great Christian? Like, look at the way that Stephen Fortenberry leads worship. And y'all, by the way, if you don't know, he had his tonsils out two weeks ago. And, the, and so he's got to talk real slow or real light. And I, I heard him singing, and he don't need to be singing because he got his tonsils out. Anyway, but is it like the Lord says, look at the way Stephen Fortenberry leads worship. Look at the way Richard Moore is such an incredible men's pastor. Man, God's saying, man, I need them on my team. No, that is not at all it. That is, that, that is, they, they bring nothing to the table. That is not the way it works. In fact, look what he says about Israel and, and why he chose Israel in the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 7. text says, It was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you, for you were the fewest of all people. But it is because the Lord loves you. And you say, well, I'm a good guy. He knows my heart. I know I do this and I know I do that and I know I think this and that, but he knows my heart. I'm a pretty good guy and I've got a pretty good heart. Look what he says in Deuteronomy 9. God says to Israel again, Know therefore that the Lord your God is not giving you this good land to possess because of your righteousness. He says, not because you did anything good, for you are a stubborn people. So he's saying, no, bruh, it was not your good heart. In fact, your heart is totally depraved. In fact, you are the most stubborn one 
of all. Well, then what was it? You see the phrase in verse 8 of, of chapter 7? Five words, because the Lord loves you. Ephesians 1.5 says that it's all according to the purpose of His will. The point is that God is not choosing us because it, that we in any way earned anything. It is solely, we earn nothing. It is solely about His grace. And then you'll probably ask, why us, why me and not them? It's not fair. It's not fair. Well, that's a good question. But remember, for the time being, I want you to leave that stuff up on that shelf. But I will say one thing about fair. Before you start talking about fair, fair would be that God choose none of us. That would be what would be fair because we, as a race of human beings, have chosen to reject God and just live with whatever the consequences are. So what's fair would be judgment and death. And you may think that that wrecks free will, that that destroys your free will. Like one of you single guys walking up to some girl and saying, I've chosen you. I've ordained you to be my wife, despite the fact that I'm ugly and you hate me. I have ordained you to be my wife, and then I conquer over the head and throw her over. Is that what's happening? Here is it, is it that God is acting against our will, like he forces us to love him. I used to think about when my kids would walk in the room, and I could say, come over here and give daddy a kiss. Okay, but how cool is it when they walk in the room and they choose without me saying that, unsolicited, to hop up in my lap and say, I love you and give me a kiss? It's a whole lot better. So that's not what is happening. God is not forcing anything on you. You're not acting, and he is not acting against your will. It's, it's totally consistent with your will. John 6, says this, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. Draws. That word draws has the, 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 the idea of an irresistible force. It is like, it's like a desperately hungry man is drawn towards food. That's what God does to us. He creates a hunger in you to know Christ. And it may be this big. Or it, it may be this big. We're all different kinds of people. But that hunger draws you towards Him. You see, our, our problem is with our wanter. W-A-N-T-E-R. Something inside of us. The problem is with our wanter. The problem is not with our chooser. It's not that we can't choose God, but we don't want to choose Him. Ephesians 2.1 says that we were dead in our sin. It doesn't say we were sick in our sin. It doesn't say that we had a cold in our sin. It said we're dead in our sin, that we desire the sin, that we, we love the sin. We, we, we love the supposed freedom that we find in it, the supposed um, independence that we find in it. So he changes our hearts, and he lets us see sometimes just a little bit and sometimes a lot. He lets us see just how nasty our sin is. He lets us see just how desirable He is. And it is only when we see that, even y'all, if it's a little bit, that we'll come to want Him a little bit. Verse 5, in love He predestined us for adoption to Him as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of His will, to the praise of His glorious grace with which He has blessed us in the Beloved. We're predestined, verse 5 says, for adoption. You got up on the screen a guy named Brandon Whitus. 
Brandon was on our staff a few years ago. Brandon and his wife, Brooke, adopted a little boy. I bet you can tell which one they adopted. They adopted a little boy, and Brandon told me about the love that you feel. Just like that, the immediate love that you feel. You walk in, and, 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 and you see that that one is going to be yours. And immediately, this love wells up inside of you, that they're going to be in your family. They're going to be a legit part of your family, that they're going to grow up with your name as your children. They're going to become heirs of your riches. Y'all, that's what Jesus did for us. He walks into the orphanage of our sin, and he says, see that one? I'm going to give him everything. You see that one, and that one, and that one, and her and him? I'm going to give them everything. They're going to be heirs of my riches. I'm giving them every spiritual blessing. Verse 7, in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight. Jesus takes over in verse 7. The Father planned our salvation. The text says before the foundation of the world. And Jesus comes and accomplishes it. He redeems us. He bought us back. That's what that word means. He came to earth and he redeemed us. How? Through his blood. He purchases our salvation once and for all. A couple of weeks ago we said fully and finally. Verse 9. Making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. Who works all things according to the counsel of his will. Here's what God's doing. He's working everything for his good plan. Everything in our life to mold us and to shape us. We are clay, y'all. This is Gumby. None of y'all are old enough to know who Gumby is. This is, he's molding, he's shaping us, and he has everything at his disposal. He's molding it simply because why? Because he loves us, because he loves us. Even when life busts you in the teeth, God's taking that jab, and he's working it for good. Richard, last week, if y'all were here, you remember, he talked about Joseph. Joseph. Joseph's, and what happened with Joseph, Joseph's brothers and the way they mistreated him and they beat him up and they sold him off into slavery. Well, at the end of the day in Genesis 50, what did Joseph say about that mistreatment? He said, as for you, he's talking to his brothers now, as for you, my brothers, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring it about that many people should be kept alive. That's in Genesis 50, verse 20. Back to, to Ephesians, verse 13. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him. So you heard the word of truth, the gospel that leads to salvation, and believed in him, those three things, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit who is what? The guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. We've seen the Father's role. We've seen the Son's role in salvation. And now here's where the Holy Spirit jumps in. He's the one who brings the salvation about in our 
heart. It's the investment that God himself makes in each one of us that is what? It's the guarantee that what God, y'all hear this, man, that what God starts, he finishes. He planned it, he accomplished it, and he seals it and guarantees it. And I say all of that to say this, Christian, you are chosen. You are chosen. But I want you to hear this too, because what I think is really important is not for me and you to figure out how this choosing works. I can't really tell you how it works, but that we embrace what it means for us. That great, awesome truth ought to produce four or five things in us. The first thing I think it produces is assurance, because salvation begins in God. It's accomplished by God. You can be sure, y'all, that he's going to finish what he starts. When I am most discouraged, when I'm having a pity party up in here with myself, when I think about all the things that I struggle with, and I think about the temptations that continue to plague me, when I've got messed up feelings or emotions, that is when the devil whispers in my ear, and you think that you're saved? Really? It happens. And when that happens, I lean on this incredible truth. Y'all, that the, the God of the universe, the very God that breathed life into man, the very God that hung the moon and the stars and everything in the heavens just where he wanted to hang it, that he started something in me that he will finish. He's not a liar. He's a promise keeper. Thank the Lord that he has always been more committed to my salvation than I have. That's all I can really say. When I first got saved, I kind of thought that it was me, that I got interested in the truth, that I got interested in God, that I made a decision for Christ, that I got crazy passionate about his word, that I started to seek him and I started to grow. But the farther I get away in time from the day that I was saved, the more that I see that it was none of me and it was all of him, that it was him. He was chasing me down and he was hunting hunting me down and that what he started in my mind and in my heart that he's going to finish. What would y'all think of a shepherd? A shepherd that leaves out in the morning and he's got a hundred sheep but he loses a few along the way. What, what would you, and you said to him, where'd those two go? And he says back to you, well, man, somewhere along the line today they just kind of fell away. But you just don't understand how stubborn those two sheep are. They're so stubborn and they've got this free will thing and I'm not going to mess with their free will and they wanted to go play over there by the cliff and I just let them go play. No, the good shepherd leaves with a hundred and he brings a hundred back home. If he starts with a hundred, he ends with a hundred. John 6 says, all that the Father gives me will come to me. It doesn't say some, it doesn't say 70% or 60. It says, all that the Father gives me will come to me and this is the will of him who sent me that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me. So number one is assurance. Number two is power and hope. It ought to, this, this truth ought to produce power and hope. The power to get back up on a horse when you fall down and the hope that the Lord will always get you back up on the horse. If I'm sure that, that what he starts he's going to finish, I can be sure that even though every day, today, may be filled with despair and discouragement. Look what happened yesterday and at 1 o'clock in the morning. I mean, 35 people's lives were snuffed out by two nutbags shooting folks. But even though today may be filled with defeat and with discouragement in your own life, 
what God has decreed for your tomorrow is victory. Ephesians 2.10 says that me and you have been created for good works that he prepared beforehand. And what that means, y'all, is the burden to fix the messed up stuff in your life is not on you. He has decreed it that, and, and supplied the power in you and through you to overcome it. So when I face a battle like cancer or like temptation or anything I may be struggling with, being a better husband, being a better father, whatever it is, God has declared beforehand that he's declared that I win. He's declared that I'll have victory in it. Y'all, there's huge hope in that. Don't go into a battle feeling like you got to win the battle alone. Yoke yourself to Christ. Lean on Him. Believe that He will win it through you, but it's not your power. My, his strength is made very visible by my weakness. And some of you get discouraged and you may wonder, you know, do I even have what it takes to be a Christian or at all? You may have hesitated at the door of the church thinking the building's going to fall in around you if you walk through the threshold. You may think that my life is so messed up by mistakes that I made or by failures that I just don't have what it takes. I want you to hear this. I want to kind of give you a, a metaphor, I guess. Imagine this, that you wake up in an ambulance and you don't even know how you got in the ambulance. And the EMT says to you, you have been in a horrific wreck. We pulled you out of it. We had the jaws of life to get you out of there. We pulled you out of that wreck and we're here to rescue you. We got you on life support. You're going to be fine because we're here to rescue you. And all you have to do at that point is consent to the rescue. You could say, get me out of this thing. There's nothing wrong with me. I'm fine on my own. I'll heal myself. It's all good. Get me out. You could say that. Or you could say, okay, and consent to that rescue. That is an image of salvation. That is an image of your salvation. God is waking you up, and he's saying to you, I'm saving you. And you may think that you are beyond hope, but God says, I'm mighty to save. You may be saying, I'm good. God, I'm good. I can save myself. I can do whatever I need to do. I'm good. I don't want any of that. He's saying just consent and believe. And for some of you, I know it's happening right now. That's why you're here. You just have to consent to what he's doing. So number two is power and hope. Number three is humility. You see, according to Ephesians, all we did, all we did is wake up in the ambulance. That is all we bring to the whole deal is we wake up in the ambulance. And again, you may think that you considered and you read and you studied and you made a decision for Christ, but according to Ephesians chapter 1, the only reason you did any of those things is because God was chasing you down. It is by grace alone, not because any of us bring anything to the table. So why did he choose you? Was it because you had a better heart? Was it because he thought you would make such a super Christian? So he just had to have you. No, he chose you so he could lavish his love upon you, so that he could glorify his grace in you. In fact, if anything, if anything, he chose me and you because we're weak, not because we're strong. The truth is, I believe that it is God's preference to turn fools into Christ followers. That way, his grace is even more amazing. I look at myself, y'all, every day, and I think, me? Like, what in the world? What in the world did I bring to the table? Me? And nothing is the answer. 
Nothing is what I bring to the table. How should that make me feel? Not proud. Not proud. It should drive me to my knees thanking the Lord for His grace in, in absolute humble thanksgiving. So number three is humility. The fourth and last great truth I think this brings to us, and this is where there tends to be controversy, I guess, if that's the word, with this doctrine, with this thought of being chosen. And, and I think it should produce in us boldness, and that's boldness in sharing the gospel. One of my very best friends, I've known him for 25 years, sweet, great Christian guy. We've been in a Bible study together for about 12 years. Our kids grew up together. We disagree on everything theologically except the cross, like everything we disagree on. And he always says to me this, well, if he's already, if God has already chosen those who will be saved, why do we witness? Why do we send missionaries out? Why do we share our faith if he's already chosen? Well, that's a great question. But for Paul, the fact that God had chosen some was exactly why he had the confidence to go out and witness. Look at Acts chapter 18. Paul's preaching in a city with rampant opposition, rampant false teaching, um, mad opposition. He was ready to throw the towel in, say to the Lord, ain't nobody up in here getting saved. I'm out. I'm going somewhere else. And God shows up in a vision and says this to Paul, go on preaching, because, and that word is a command. It's not a suggestion to Paul. Go on preaching because I, the Lord, have many people in this city. And I can hear Paul saying, well, where the heck are they? But what did Paul do? He kept on preaching and he kept on speaking, knowing and trusting and believing that the Lord was going to bring some. That God had chosen many more people is exactly what motivated Paul. I read of a missionary one time who wrote, he said that when he first went out in the mission field, he didn't know how in the world he could be a missionary if he believed that God had chosen people. But after a few years of actually serving in the mission field, he said he didn't know how he could ever go on another day if he didn't believe that God had chosen some. He said people, people's hearts are so hard. He said, unless I believed that God would change someone's heart, I'd be convinced that people would never believe and I'd give up. Y'all, you don't know the, the song that was playing when they showed that Mission Week video. It talks about one of the doors is you. God uses everything at his disposal. Primarily, he uses his church. Well, what is his church? His church is the body of all believers for all time. He uses you. That's the vehicle that he uses to get done what he wants to get done. And so you and you and you and you and you and me are the doorway to lead people to him. We don't know who they are. We, we don't have any idea if they are chosen or not. Hold that thought for a second. The idea that God chooses some to salvation, it does not discourage sharing Christ. It empowers it. Sharing Christ with people and praying for them is the way that God ordains that people will get elected. So again, why share the gospel if God has already declared and elected some to salvation? And, and here's a, I'm going to give you two more truths. Because the more I share the gospel and the more I pray for their salvation, the more people keep on getting elected. The more I share the gospel and the more I pray for their salvation, the more people keep on getting chosen. 
And you might say that that makes your head hurt. I understand it. And it seems like there's tension and there's mystery in that. But you know what? It's a tension and it's a mystery that I can live with. Here's a huge takeaway. Share the gospel with people like it's all up to you and pray for their salvation like it's all up to him. Share like it's all up to you and pray like it's all up to him. So this assurance, y'all, this, this power, this, this hope, this humility and this boldness, those are some of the things that are going to be true in your life if you believe this great truth. But I'm telling you, don't accept it just like academically. Is the fact that I believe this reflected in my walk? Do I live with the hope that God is working everything for my good or am I struggling with depression? Do I fight temptation with the confidence that comes from knowing that God's got it or do I feel defeated? Do I share the gospel with boldness, the boldness of knowing that God is drawing some or am I a coward who keeps his mouth shut for fear of rejection? And the last thing, I I know some of you may be sitting there and thinking, well, how do I even know that I'm elected? You're asking yourself, what does John 1.12 say? But to all who did receive him, to all who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. If while I'm talking to you today, you have a desire inside to believe a little bit on the name of Jesus, that desire is from him, and I would beg you to act on that. That desire wouldn't be there if God wasn't working on pricking your heart a little bit, if he wasn't drawing you to him. Here's how I think he does it. First, there's a little bit of conviction of sin, and it may be a lot of conviction of sin, but it may be a little bit of conviction of sin where the sin doesn't quite taste as good as you thought it tasted before. Maybe maybe before you were kind of indifferent to him, but now in your heart you want to know him, and there's a little bit of, of wanting to know him. And if that's happening, God is drawing you. He very ever so slightly maybe, but he's drawing you to him. Man, the fact that you're here today may very well mean that he is drawing you today. The fact that you met uh, some Christian person at work that you struck up a conversation with. The fact that you met the guy next door in the house next door. You met this this girl that is is in the apartment next to you. Who, Who knows? Who knows that that's not what's going on? Those are providential relationships. It's not just some random chance that your lives passed with your, your lives crossed, the path crossed with those people. Y'all, you're in the ambulance right now and you're being woken up. Just believe and consent to the rescue. And even still, and this is going to, it blows my mind to think of it this way and it's probably going to blow your mind. I can say without, completely without hesitation that the choice is yours. Your free will has not been wrecked. Jesus said, whosoever will may come. Whether or not you are chosen is in your court. That will blow your mind. The irony in, it, in, in all of that is that you have the opportunity to choose whether or not you're predestined. Y'all, I don't understand how that works. I know that God is not bound by time. We want to put Him in a box of, uh, in a clock box where he's, but he's not bound by time. And so I cannot explain fully to you how this choosing works. But I know it doesn't wreck your free will. And I know that if you say yes, then you're chosen. I know that every believer for all time that is a believer was chosen. 
Here's the deal. No matter who you are or no matter what stage of life you're in, I believe that God is drawing you. He's waking you up in the ambulance. And if you see that and you believe that, all you have to do is say yes and consent to that rescue. Maybe today He's saying to you, believe me that I'm in charge of everything in your life, even though it looks like everything's going wrong. Maybe He's saying, believe me that I will provide victory over whatever the struggle is that is in your life. Or maybe today He's saying to you, believe me that I've come to save you right now and just say yes to my offer. So here's the question. Are you willing to say yes? God, I'll trust you in my circumstances. Even though it looks like they're all spinning out of control. Or God, I'll let you lead me in victory. Or God, yes, 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 I will receive you today as my Savior. There are people in here today that are going to say that last thing. Yes, yes, yes. Wake me up. I'm in the ambulance and I know I can't fix it myself. I know my heart is bleeding everywhere and you are the only one, God, that can fix that. And so yes, today I will consent to be rescued. It takes a suppression of pride, especially for men. It takes a suppression of pride to say, I can't fix it myself. So Lord, I know you're waking me up in this ambulance of my life and I want you to rescue me. If that is you today, it is simple. I repent. I acknowledge my sin and I repent. And I believe, what am I believing? That you died on a cross. What does verse 7 say? He redeems us through His blood. So I repent and I believe and I'm saved. And I will be with Him for eternity. Y'all pray with me.